Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that supports people navigating herpes stigma with different sorts of mental health support resources. Today I am here with Elle Stanger, who is 35 years old, sex is female, pronouns are she or they, not heterosexual, and considers themselves to be a member of the sex positive community and they are involved with kink and bdsm and when it comes to scis the ones that they had been diagnosed with in the past have been chlamydia hpv and possibly transmitted hsv herpes simplex virus to a partner so we'll get to talk about that too uh, their experience with receiving their diagnosis from a healthcare provider was through a pap smear and cervical scraping revealed hpv in 2015 it was monitored and then she went underwent a coloscopy, colposcopy. Wow, I messed that up. I'm glad you were here to correct me. Yay! <laughs> uh, in 2018, when asked, "Did your provider prepare you with the resources you needed in order to discuss your positive diagnosis with your most recent partner, aka disclose?" Uh, they said no. Since your first STI, uh, I, I guess like this all would come up organically in conversation. But since I have two. Phones. I'm looking at one and I'm able to just kind of go through here, but um, I'm curious about this question. I was just going to use that as your introduction, but you said um, unclear in response to since your first STI diagnosis, have you tested positive for another STI? Yeah. So the first one that I would count would be chlamydia in 2015. And then I had, yeah, the HSV that you talked about. Um, I recently, a partner and I went to uh, a pretty long three hour, yeah, three hour appointment where he had a bunch of tests run and he'd also experienced some, uh, what's it called? Ulcers on his penis. Um, and we don't know, he's never had that before. So I'm wondering if I transmitted my HSV one to his genitals sometime in the last year. Uh, and then also I did go to a provider, my doctor or my general practitioner to get a screening a year and a half ago when we started dating. And I actually went to go get screened for gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, HIV, and they tested me for a yeast infection, uh, mistakenly, which I was knew I didn't have. In addition to, or no, only? accidentally, they didn't screen me for what I requested and so I had to go back and get screened. And then I didn't hear any uh, follow-up response to that. So I'm assuming I have not tested positive for anything since, but I don't trust my healthcare provider. And that's a very good transition into this podcast topic. Um, the distrust that you have for your healthcare provider, is it because of that, them just not testing you for what you asked for, or are there more experiences? So because I've moved a few different times and changed insurance a few different times, um, I've seen, I would say, five or six different healthcare providers in the last couple years just for regular screenings. And every time I go to get screened, because I have multiple partners and I also do sex work, which um, involves friction and sometimes bodily fluids, um, every time I go to get screened, when they ask me why I'm here, because I say I don't have any symptoms, I tell them I'm doing my due diligence and I am sometimes met with a weird look or response. So it's at that point that I say either I have multiple partners or I do sex work. And that usually shuts them up. But I feel like a lot of people, um, if they're trying to be responsible just to get screened for a new partner or just for themselves, um, for their own timeline, they're going to be discouraged from wanting to do that when they're treated like an anomaly for wanting to do that if they are asymptomatic. Yeah. And have you found that there have been some behaviors or, um, things that set off your alarm or radar for whether or not a healthcare provider is going to be a good one or a less desired one? Mm, that's kind of tricky. Actually, no. I've been pleasantly surprised and disappointed at a planned parenthood. Um, but that's, it's been a few years. It's been actually over five years since I had 
that negative interaction. So I think their training is getting a lot more inclusive. I hope it is. Mm -hmm. Um, I only hear from other folks that say that like, you know, because they were trans, they feel like they were stabbed harder when the provider was like taking blood from them or treated more brusquely or whatever. Um, but there's no way that I could tell that someone is like immediately safe, even if they have like a rainbow pin. <laughs> yeah. And there's, that's a conversation to be had as well, just mm-hmm. with what the environment of a healthcare setting can project onto its patients in terms of allyship, trauma-informed, harm reduction, um, inclusive, understanding the language to use, as well as like understanding how a person may be coming into the healthcare facility for treatment or services, regardless of how they might present themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Based on your experiences to this point, do you have any guidance for a patient who may have a shared experience as you? Like, how can someone uh, come in, ask for what they need, get what they need, and then leave? Gosh, I wish I could be more helpful. Something that I recently read on Twitter is a doctor provider was saying how important it is to, if you are the one that has more power in the dynamic, to help your client or your patient or your student feel more comfortable by just sitting at like body level with them rather than standing over them. Or things like holding a clipboard can be really intimidating for some people. Um, So I guess, I don't know. I wish I could tell people like if you have a weird feeling, leave. Or if you feel like you're being picked on, stand up for yourself. But really like we're talking about people that hold our health records and can schedule us and have access maybe to our insurance or address. Um, So yeah, I, I... really don't know offhand like a great screening method except for referral talking to other folks and i ask you know where did you go that didn't give you a hell time well i have a solution and it looks like (laughs) this is such a good point to sell but one of the things that something positive for positive people is doing is we are taking the experiences that people have to share with us um, in regards to their healthcare provider providing exceptional care or care that made them feel stigmatized or shamed or that was um, causing harm. And I ask that people share these experiences with me so that I can create a directory that shows who's doing well, who do you want to visit, who do you want to patronize, and then who's not doing so well so that we can support them in understanding what they did. Because a lot of times people will leave from an encounter um, with a patient, like a clinician and a patient will have an interaction and the clinician will go on about their business thinking that everything went well, Mm -hmm. but the patient may have had a completely different experience. And if no one's saying anything to them, which it's not expected for the patient to, you know, especially given the power dynamics, express that they felt talked down to they felt dehumanized, they felt whatever it is that they might be feeling as a result of that encounter with the clinician, they may never say that because it's not safe. Where do you go? What do you do? You just find a new doctor or what? Mm -hmm. So I invite people who listen to this podcast, if you have a great healthcare provider, let me know. I want to tell them how great they're doing. If you have had an experience with one that was subpar, let me know so that I can reach out. I don't have to say your name and just ask them about um, the project that we're doing, which is giving them practice, taking a sexual history, providing a CI testing and delivering a diagnosis. Because I think that's what a lot of us really just need is to get more comfortable interacting with and practicing with um, engaging with people who might have different identities or different relationship structures. Oh, something comes to mind. Um, So this isn't specifically STIs, but it is sex. So when I actually got a new doctor, um, she was talking to me about my sexual history and she asked what I use for birth control. And I told her, so I know you're not gonna like this. Um, I am a certified sex educator. I've never had an accidental pregnancy but I use condoms and often withdraw with my cis partner. And she said, okay, well, come back to me when you're pregnant. That was it? That was what she said. Come back to me if you get pregnant. Oh, all right. 
Meaning that what I'm doing is probably not going to be effective, but actually if you use withdrawal correctly, it's one of the most effective methods if you use it correctly. A lot of people don't, they don't pull out in time. Um, but this is a method I've been using condoms and withdrawal with my cis partners for 20 years. And again, I told her this, and I also told her I've never had an accident on pregnancy. So the fact that she heard all of that and then still talked to me as if I'm inevitably going to get pregnant, um, that has stuck with me for a few years. That is something that would stick with me too. I mean, you not only passed your judgment or projection onto me, you know, but you've already stated your credentials and I don't know, maybe your doctor could have interpreted that as, oh, you know more than me. All right, whatever. Right. So there's no proper etiquette for speaking as a patient to a provider and vice versa. Well, there is vice versa. Like you should uh, speak to your patient in a certain way and you want to make them comfortable so that they can get to the place of delivering the information that you gave. You mm -hmm. let them know what you do for work. You let them know how you have sex, what your birth control methods are. And this is the information that providers need from us in order to most effectively do their job. Mm -hmm. If there's going to be a disconnect between their own internal bias or internal stigma and judgment, then what do we get out of even coming in to take care of our health at all. Like, do we get anything out of that? Honestly, I kind of just want to go back to her and be like, hey, still not pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did. Um, so when I had to have the colposcopy, so my HPV was identified as a strain that was not cancerous, which is great. Um, you know, there's only a couple types that are, but most cervical cancer is related to HPV. So... If you have HPV, it's good to see that you don't have a non-cancer uh, strain. So in finding that out, I had the colposcopy. That's where they cut multiple sections from your cervix, which is different than a leap where they slice a like a, a disc, like a layer off of the entire thing. So I was told that it can be a little uncomfortable. I was told by my, my prep, by the, the doctor's office, you know, to prepare that it can be a little uncomfortable. Some people bleed a little bit. Uh, I can take some aspirin. So I know I have a sensitive cervix. I told her I have a sensitive cervix. I am covered in tattoos and I've had my face pierced like 15 times and I've stretched my ears and all kinds of shit. So I have a high pain tolerance, but I, I vocalized a concern. <laughs> and then during the colposcopy, I nearly vomited, passed out. I turned green. I was sweating. And the person doing the colposcopy, which was the doctor, and then the assistant nurse or whatever in the room, they said, oh, you are very sensitive. <laughs> so seemingly I'm an outlier, but uh, when I talked to other people who had this procedure, I it wasn't so uncommon for people to have very adverse, painful reactions or you know, a decent amount of bleeding afterwards and soreness for a few days. And I think our medical, a lot of medical people just minimize something like that because they do procedures all day long. So they don't deal with the after effects. Mm. So that was very, I feel like I could have been better supported and better prepared for that. And I just didn't really feel heard. So I can imagine how people with more severe issues or procedures, you know, can, those issues can be compounded. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Did you feel any sort of stigma in relation to your HPV? Um, no, luckily not because they said this is very common. Um, and that was honestly nice to hear. Mm -hmm. And the reason I ask is because well, there's a few reasons. I remember when I first started this podcast and I was looking to just interview people who've had any experience with any STI. HPV was considered, you know, sexually transmitted. Mm -hmm. So I went to the HPV Reddit and I asked would anybody be open to an interview? And they were like, nope, don't make this a thing. It's not a thing. Oh, Jesus. And I was like, oh, all right, well, I guess I'll shut up. But I've heard from people who felt so much more stigma than people I've talked to who have herpes, like someone who tests positive for uh, HPV, you know, given that this is something that potentially causes cancer that, you know, could like make you, you infertile. Yeah. Right. And I, I guess I was just like really 
shocked by that because you can't test for it in men, mm-hmm. right? Males. Mm-hmm. Uh, in males. Um, yet, you know, here we are, we're talking about, you know, the process of having to get surgery. We're talking about the potential long-term consequences. And with an STI, you just pop a pill. You maybe get it. Well, we don't do the shot anymore. We just take the pill or... Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pills. Like, yeah. all SCIs are curable or treatable, manageable, mm-hmm. right? So, with that understanding, like, why is it that HPV stands as an outlier when it can be transmitted sexually, especially from people with penises to people who have a cervix, versus um, things that aren't? near a serious so like chlamydia herpes chlamydia right and we can just take uh, medicine to either cure chlamydia or manage herpes right Mm -hmm. so the only difference that i see and i was going to try and get you to just say this but (laughs) is sex like sex seems to be the differentiator here because if hpv is you know so common as your doctor said Mm -hmm. why don't we get that kind of a response with chlamydia or herpes even or HIV Mm. yeah I don't know Um, I remember not to derail but I'm remembering now the first time I noticed an anogenital wart and so HPV the non-cancerous strains are the ones that are more likely to give you the little wart bumps which are usually around your butthole or your vulva and I noticed this little bump right at the top of my butthole and at the time yeah it was 2015 and I remember uh, thinking, well, that's interesting. It's never been there before. Maybe it's a blocked pore or like it's not a, you know, is it a zit? But it just stayed there for about, I think, nine months to a year. And then one day I noticed it was gone. So I didn't even know what that was. Now I know what it was. It was a side effect of the non-cancerous HPV strain. But you would think that... I don't know. I just wish that I, I just, I was never taught this. This is before I went through sex ed training, but this was stuff I had to Google myself and it was kind of after the fact. So I just, I'm really kind of amazed at like the lack of general information out there. Yeah. And that speaks to your response to the question. What do you feel you wish you could change about your experience having tested positive for an SCI? And you said you wish you had just been, you had this explained to you that sex involves potential risks in a way that is very common and normal, just mm-hmm. like playing sports, right? So mm-hmm. even when playing sports, I noticed we had our safety um, meetings or oh. whatever. Uh, but if we knew what all of the risks were mm-hmm. between ankle injuries, broken toes, ACL, surgeries, hips, shoulders, neck, concussion, death, if you were to put those things out onto the piece of paper that we had to sign for our waiver and we actually read those things, I don't think we'd have football. We would not have a lot of sports. So my question is, do you think that if we had all of these symptoms (laughs) laid out before sex, would people still want to do it? Yeah, I think so. I think they'd be better prepared. I think less people might be wanting to do it. Just like, you know, if all parents knew that you know, 99% of professional football players end up having, like, brain damage at some point, um, would they want their kids to play? You know, like, what does informed consent look like? So if we don't have the information, then we're not able to consent as fully. And so I think that definitely applies to sex and sports and anything else contact. You know, even travel. Like, hey, we know traveling the plane might crash. It's a pretty low risk, more likely to die in a car accident, really. Um, But like that is still something that some people know getting into a car. So, I mean, if you've ever heard people say, I didn't know how babies were made. I didn't know how we got pregnant. We were having sex, but no one told us how babies were made. That still happens. Um, Yeah, there's just a lot of sex ed information that everybody needs yeah and this is so related to sports to me like the more that I think about it with the analogy that you gave um, because we look to certain we look to aspire to be like a certain 
person or way that we think we're supposed to be mm-hmm. playing football. Um, I wanted to be like a certain football player because I got to see them perform and they did well and they got the praise, they got the stats. In sex, our role models are typically porn stars where, again, these types of things aren't outlined. I don't know what those NFL players had to sign and what their risks were. And, you know, I know that they're held to a higher standard, but that's really vague. And I know, all right, if you're a football player, don't get in trouble. Mm -hmm. Don't do things like drive drunk. Like there's the obvious thing. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to sex, I think our obvious thing um, in terms of standards we're being held to is wear a condom. Mm -hmm. Like that's the equivalent that I have as far as a parallel goes between Mm -hmm. Uh, what are what those two things are? But even in porn, we don't see condoms used. No, in porn. you you don't see you don't see the negotiation beforehand. You don't see them getting brunch together after. You don't see the blood screenings that most major production companies require. Like every two weeks, if you're actively filming, you do a blood draw every eleven days. Some performers do, which goes into a database, and until they test as negative they can't work so like even that so many people don't know that's the case I remember I interviewed Bonnie Broughton was her performer name and lots of squirting lots of really aggressive you know it like dramatic this is not the sex I would mimic casually (laughs) like on a Tuesday with my boyfriend on the couch after I ate spaghetti you know (laughs) like like she is definitely, she was a extreme performer and she said, she's like, I can't work unless I do a full blood panel every 11 to 13 days. And a lot of people just don't know that. So if you're trying to mimic what Bonnie Rotten does, um, you're just not going to be able to in the same way because you don't have the prep. You probably weren't fluffing your asshole for an hour or two before you even started filming. Um, and you know, porn stars and performers, they definitely have their hard limits too which they also negotiate with each other, you know, ideally beforehand. And again, that comes down to like working conditions, you know, how's the production team? How's the company? Like what are the power dynamics and lots of other things that we deal with under capitalism. And speaking to the sports side of this, I mean, we look at making the team, we look at practice, we look at showing up for meetings, studying film and opponents and Working stretching. together, all the stretching, yeah. the aftercare, the There's, healing, mm-hmm. physical therapy, the ice baths after, um, the 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 conditioning. Oh God! But like to have sex versus playing sports, we are so much more equipped with the tools we need in order to play sports. And even in preparation, as best we can be, we can still have injuries. Mm-hmm. And in sex, we can be as prepared as we can be. Mm-hmm. But we can still have, have injuries. Yeah, I mean, I want to call it an injury. I'll I try mean, to find a better word. Who hasn't had a sex injury though? Like chafing, or you sat on someone's dick, and that could do a lot of damage. Uh, one that okay, here's one just for like shout out to anybody who fucks anybody who shaves their genitals. Something. One of the reasons I started growing pubic hair um, on top is. Number one, I like the way it looks on me. But number two, when someone is rubbing an area where you shave, it's going to equal ingrown hairs <laughs> for a lot of folks. And so actually, like, manual pleasure and friction was really not fun for me as a teenager just because I was trying to deal with razor burn that I didn't know how to deal with. You know, something as simple like that. Um so yeah, people, if you're, if you're giving a handy, like try to not rub against the grain. <laughs> a handy also for vaginas. Can I say this in you, your... You can say these Excellent. things, yes. Great. This is... <laughs> Courtney's laughing at me. Uh, <laughs> laughing with me. Yes, I'm laughing with you for sure, for <laughs> sure. Um, all right, so we've, wrapping up the sports and sex analogies, I guess like the same way that we have, <laughs> we have a league coaches we have many leagues you know what does being prepared for sex look like because throughout this series the consistent thing for the people that I've interviewed here is that they didn't get uh, useful information from their healthcare providers and then it was after they tested positive for an STI that they were able to then go on 
through their research on their own and then begin to find information about how to disclose, how to communicate about sex and sexual health. And they stumbled into the realm of sex positivity and kink where these foundational aspects of communication are essential. They are uh, highlighted, emphasized, and they are expected. It's assumed that you're going to come in with this level of communication. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I don't have anything to add to that. What's the question? Oh, so question would be, I guess, what does that look like? Oh. What does it look like for us to have this information prior to uh, the time when we need it or when we test positive for an STI and then we happen to stumble into having to have certain conversations like what would best prepare us for negotiations and being prepared for the risks that come with sex mm, dropping expectations i think is so huge because what you said earlier like we watch porn and we're like "Ooh, that looks cool i might want to try that or i might really impress the person i'm sleeping with if, if i do this thing because you know that performer seems like it when I worked in uh, adult retail, I remember there would be people that would come in and it was quite often men who were trying to, you know, please their partner and also look good for their partner, I think, you know, um, but they'd be like, I have to get this toy. I saw this toy in a video and the women were just going crazy. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's entertainment you're watching. So drop your expectations um, or like something that looks away doesn't necessarily feel away. Like I was masturbating, hunched over, pumping my vibrator with my pillows stacked around me two days ago. And I was thinking, wow, the way I get myself off is so different than the way I film myself getting myself off uh, for the most part, because angles are flattering when you're looking at them, but it might not feel the most pleasurable for my body. So really like, it's great to use porn and art and movies as inspiration but don't expect to be able to mimic them because the settings are different and also the outcomes are different. The goals should be different. You're not trying to film to make entertainment unless you are. You want to feel good. Um, another example I'll use really quick is a gay friend of mine years ago, and he, this is before he was having partnered sex, but he sent me a picture of two men fucking in the shower, super hot. My first thought was, wow, that's so dangerous. They're going to fall. Like that would not be functional. And I said that to him and he was like, oh, I didn't even think about that. And I was like, yeah, honey, you've never fucked in the shower. So, um, yeah, drop your expectations. Um, it is so helpful to be able to identify what you don't like. I know I don't like spitting during sex. I know that a lot of people do. So something I say right out the gate to anyone who's going to be on my body, you know, for fun uh, is... Just so you know, I don't like spitting and please don't put anything in my butt unless I ask, right? So that is very helpful. People think boundaries are mean sometimes, but boundaries are actually very kind because you are helping them to show up in a way that you will prefer. And then also, if that's not a way they want to show up, that is their opportunity to then respond with, oh, I actually really like spitting and I'm feeling really into anal these days, so maybe we should do something else. Or maybe we shouldn't do this. Um, or, which has also happened, I have set this boundary before and the person that I was playing with started putting their finger in my ass. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, so that was, that was a choice for me right there to be like, oh, do I want to continue with this person? Um, so yeah, uh, drop your expectations. Know what you don't want to do. Um, it's helpful to know what you do want to do. That can also come up like, oh, I'm feeling into this right now. So what else? Um, hygiene is really important to me. For some people, it's not. Uh, but for a lot of folks, they're not going to feel sexy if they don't feel clean. So whatever that means to you, you know, shower, take a big poo and an enema and then shower, <laughs> you know, shave, wax, whatever, cut your toenails. Like being, feeling comfortable is so important to feeling sexy. Um, the only time I know that I don't feel comfortable, but I still proceed with sexual activity is when I am working because I am a sex worker. And as long as my choice to participate outweighs my discomfort, I will keep proceeding. So like if I have a client that is stinky, 
or has long fingernails that scratch me in a way that I don't like. I can either make a choice to negotiate around that if I think it's worth it, or I could end it, or I can choose to just focus on something else and redirect them. But that's when I am literally working to make money and this is not for my pleasure. So this doesn't apply, this should not apply to a lot of people, but then when I talk to a lot of folks, especially women, and then when I read from black sexologist women that black women a lot of times do this too, they don't want to speak up because they don't want to upset their partner. So a lot of women are choosing to have performative sex because it is safer for them in society right now. And that's really unfortunate because it makes me understand why some people don't have positive feelings around sexuality or they're not able to grow their own. And it does a great disservice to our partners of all genders and men because they don't know how to show up for us if we haven't set the boundaries because we don't feel safe enough to. Is this something that we can get our healthcare providers comfortable with speaking to their patients about? Oh my gosh, it depends on the healthcare provider because some people get into healthcare because they like power and control or problem solving. It's not because they want to help people. I mean, if you've ever met a social worker that clearly didn't have the children's best interest, but she just really, really didn't like the parent. No, she's going to stick it to the parent. Cops do this. You know, teachers do this. Some people are really malicious in places of power. So I think when we raise the standards for everybody, it will help weed out some of the people who do harm in their places of power. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I guess I want to understand a little bit um how how can sex workers have sexual health conversations with their healthcare providers and then i want to flip that for being able to give providers something that they can use um, when they are speaking to someone who's a sex worker and i don't want to jumble the two between non-monogamy and sex work but there's a piece of this that I feel there's an overlap mm -hmm. where a person who just has multiple partners is going to be looked at differently by someone with bias, mm -hmm. but a person who's a sex worker is going to be assumed to be, you know, worse than just someone who might have multiple partners, right? Mm -hmm. So my question is how, as a sex worker, can someone initiate healthy dialogue with their healthcare provider that is going to give them what they need in order for them to best provide the highest quality level of service to them for their health and so that they can continue to do their job. So I think about this a lot and it's really tricky because I can't give anybody a script that will be effective, but anytime I or myself are talking to other people about choices and potential damage or risk. Um, harm reduction, harm reduction, harm reduction is what comes up. So if someone's like, you know, I got to take this client and I don't prefer to work with this client, but if I don't do this, then I will have to do two weeks of this other work, which is actually more dangerous and shitty for me. Um, or Yes, like I forgot to use a condom or I didn't use a condom, but I'm here now. So harm or accidents happen, but the goal is to reduce harm. So if someone's like, I did meth for 10 years and then I quit. If they go to a doctor and they're having chronic health issues and the doctor asks their history and they tell them honestly like, oh, you know, I was a heavy drug user it's really crucial for the doctor or the healthcare provider to not punch down on them or punish them for disclosing that, but to continue trying to reduce harm. Like we can't go back with what's already been done. You can't take a time travel machine, you know, and like change the things you wish that you could, but it's really, really important to just with what we have now going forward, how can we reduce harm? So if a provider is going to try to shame me, I think it would be in my best interest to try to remind them, aren't we trying to reduce harm, both of us? Um, how can we do that? Uh, because abstinence is not the same as harm reduction. When we try to tell people, just don't have sex, 
that is not realistic for people who are in domestic violence situations where they can't say no, you know? Um, so harm reduction might be putting them on birth control, for example, or a sex worker's like, you know, I'm a felon and I'm an immigrant, so I can't get hired anywhere else. So I am going to do this work. And for me, harm reduction looks like having a bunch of condoms and lube to minimize potential, you know, infections. Uh, people have to make a lot of choices all the time, which are very influenced by timing, circumstance, privilege, variables, all kinds of stuff. So when in doubt, I guess I just, when, <laughs> when in doubt, definitely pull out. Uh, but when in doubt, I just try to think of the phrase harm reduction. And if I'm feeling guilty for not doing something, you know, all the way, I just remind myself like harm reduction is an abstinence. When COVID hit and me and my small family had been literally in the house for a month, we were going stir crazy. We went for a drive. We went for a drive out in nature and I went to share a picture of that on Instagram and my partner at the time, he said, you really shouldn't do that because people are going to get mad at you for being out of the house. And I said, I understand that, but we are going to kill each other or ourselves uh, if we don't get outside and get some fresh air. Yeah, right. So those little day trips helped. Um, and then anyone who knows me knows that my partner did die by suicide uh, a year after the pandemic started. And he was very specific about how he felt hopeless about the future. Um, he didn't have any money left, his savings was eaten up. So honestly, I wish sometimes I had taken him out more. Yeah, on the other end of that, mm -hmm. so I feel like what your answer did was kind of answer the next question. So I'll just kind of like piece it through as best I can here. Mm -hmm. um, we're, wanting to I, I can't get around this like I, I wanted to try and just like get away from the slogan but sexual health is mental health mm -hmm. and what you just articulated was a perfect example of that because so much of how people can be seen is really interconnected with their sexual identity so if I show up and I say hey you know I might I, I'm sexually active with multiple people you know you might look at me as a provider and just have a, a sort of disdain or an unintentional bias projection or mm -hmm. uh, like we talk about harm reduction, you know, mm -hmm. your nonverbals can also cause harm. So if I'm receiving that from you, you're not seeing me as a person, a whole person. You're not even seeing me for, you know, what I could be experiencing in my psych, psych psychology, in my mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you're looking at me, and determining, oh, you probably got this. You probably sick, you know. And there's no getting to know me because you're not giving me the opportunity to allow for you to get to know me as mm -hmm. a person, so that we can talk about what my risk factors are. Mm -hmm. You're looking at me like what my sex act was or would have been, mm -hmm. right? Like if I were to say I'm someone who has sex with men, then there's a whole nother layer of that that comes mm -hmm. into play. Especially if you say you're a receptive partner or that you bottom for men, which is anal penetration, which is usually looked down as like one of the most disrespected like sex acts that men can do is to receive penis from another man. Wow. And so the whole component of, sexual health is mental health described in what you just shared it's we have to get providers to see people as people and not for what their condition is oh this person's coming in with stinging urine mm -hmm. and they have multiple sex partners it's more than likely an sci mm -hmm. and then you know don't talk to us that way <laughs> You know, I, something I just, I heard it in my brain, but like if someone goes to the doctor and they have a UTI or, you know, BV or something and they're a stripper, you know, even in Portland, which is like the most strip clubs per capita. Uh, and there's so much of the city that is literally built on the adult industry and nightlife, you know, sector. And it's been that way for a century. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very likely that a provider will be like, oh, well, this person is a stripper. So of course they have like a dirty pussy, <laughs> but what if it's actually that a lot of us in sex work are just more aware and more proactive 
So maybe we're going out and getting screened more. But to a provider, say they see a bunch of, you know, strippers or dancers coming in to get screened, it might reinforce their bias where maybe we're being more responsible than civilians. And I use the word civilians and so do other sex workers because you folks don't fight the battles we do. <laughs> You've never had your bank account closed because you work in a strip club or you have an OnlyFans. And that happens all the time. Chase did it years ago. Uh, Wells Fargo is still doing it. You know, good luck trying to use Square or any other payment processor for adult work. It says in their terms of service, you can't do it anyway. So yeah, we just, there's so much bias and stigma that a lot of people in different industries or sectors or lifestyles or communities might experience. And a lot of it's intersecting and it really comes down to the bias of the provider and what they believe. And I also want to make space to speak to sex work as this spectrum of activity because mm -hmm. when we say sex work i think that the immediate term that comes to mind is prostitute mm -hmm. or prostitution mm -hmm. or escort right and i recently heard someone who is a sex worker say you know she had a client who just wanted to talk mm -hmm. oh yeah all the time yeah totally yeah i uh who was i being i was being interviewed Oh, I was, yeah, I was on a different podcast and he was saying how one of his escort friends said that some of her clients just really wanted to do blow and just talk. And she's like, man, I don't do blow. I'd rather they just want to rail me for five minutes with a condom and then leave. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, the first full service appointment I ever did, really sweet man. He was my dad's age. He, um, you know, we had sex for 15 minutes, um, and then he wanted to talk about retirement and like the boat he was building, you know, for the next 40 minutes. Um, so yeah, there can be a lot of emotional labor. And then there's sex workers, like if you do webcam, you know, you're never being touched by a client. You're being viewed and perceived by maybe hundreds of people. Um, but if I am penetrating myself or rubbing myself or mimicking sex or, you know, licking my fingers and then putting them inside me, like this is friction, this is bacteria, I've done a webcam show and then gone to the strip club where I'm sitting on dirty surfaces or rolling dancing on the floor or sitting on someone's leg or navigating a client's hands away from my crotch because no, sir, you're not allowed to touch there, you know? And then what if I want to fuck my boyfriend the next day? I'm like, honey, I got some irritation because of my work, you know? So I use, you know, ointments and salves and then vitamins and shower I wash with antibacterial dial soap, not in my vagina, but my body. So that is, again, that's harm reduction, but I'm very aware of the different risks. And that could include like MRSA or staff from rubbing on a strip club stage or against a client. Now we're worrying about, you know, monkeypox vaccines. So I was talking to one of the other strippers last night and I was like, yeah, it's dark in here, but like I'm checking people's legs for sores you know if I'm rubbing my hands down someone's leg and I feel that they have an open wound on their leg and that happens sometimes well fuck me you know <laughs> I gave a dance to a guy once and he said uh hey just so you know don't grind on my pants because I was working all day and I was working in fiberglass I was like seriously change your freaking clothes before you go out anyway <laughs> So there's just a lot to think about when you are a sex worker, whether or not you are being penetrated by a client or penetrating the client or touching the client at all. If you're dealing with genitals or touch or interaction, yeah, it's just, it, it helps when we have more tools to understand this stuff and there's no training, there's no instruction book given to people who start doing sex work. A lot of this information you have to just find from your peers or published you know writing if there's anything that you can find that hasn't been banned by your local bookstore mm. all right i think that the last thing that i want to touch on with you is something that has been demonstrated throughout the entirety of our conversation here which is how testing positive for an sti changed the way that you engage in sexual relationships Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm. so i told you listeners uh, Courtney's been here with me for this for years, but so my partner of four years and four months died by suicide in February of 2021. Uh, we, we were non-monogamous for the last two-ish, three-ish years of our relationship. Um, I had 
think a sex partner, another male sex partner a couple times. He had a couple other female sex partners. He made out with a couple dudes when he was drunk at the bar, but that's a pretty low risk. Um, and so we were navigating that really well. And then he died. And then I was single and learning how to date and fuck again. And so I had to not relearn, but repractice these conversations where I was coming from a different place. Um, and that was also not just about physical and like medical health safety, but like emotional safety. So who am I even allowing over to my house in my bed at all? Um, and then I did find someone that I knew I was falling in love with. I didn't have the emotional energy to sleep with other people. I still don't. So I've been sexually monogamous with this male for the last year. Uh, I still do online sex work and stripping sex work. I haven't had any other in-person, full-service sex clients, which is on the table for later. That's just something we haven't talked about yet. I have no time. <laughs> and as long as the other work is lucrative, I won't dip into full service. Um, again, people do more risky and dangerous work when it is lucrative, if that's the choices they have to make. Um, but when I first time, so me and current boyfriend, we'd been talking online for two months. You know, we'd hugged twice. I invited him over to my house. We talked for a couple hours. And I was like, oh, shit, we didn't have the barriers conversation. Um, we haven't talked about screening, but I know we're about to have sex and I want to have sex and I think he does too. And so we were making out and clothes were coming off and I did the thing that actually like a lot of sex educators will say you shouldn't do, which is have the conversation when you're mid, mid about to. But for a lot of people, that's just how that happens. Um, so I actually was like, wait. And I started giving him my history. I was like, hold on. I was like, we didn't do this. But I had chlamydia five years ago. Nothing since except for I have HSV and I get sores a couple times a year. I haven't had one in a year, you know, and also I have HPV. Um, but I've been, you know, asymptomatic, you know, nothing in like years. And he's like, okay. He says, I have hep C and I got screened two months ago. And I was like, cool, I got screened a month ago because I was hoping to sleep with him. <laughs> and we went right back to it. And, you know, I a year later, a year and two months later, I said to him, you know, I think I'm going to go for my yearly screening pretty soon because it's about that time. And I don't think you cheated on me or exposed me to anything, but I also know that screening is wrong sometimes. They miss things. Uh, the last time I went, they tested me for yeast infection, even though I told them I didn't have any symptoms and I requested a regular chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, HIV screening. They fucked up, so I had to go back. I don't trust that they did their jobs right. So I said, if we test positive for something, you know, I, that could, that's a possibility. And, you know, how do you feel about that? And he's like, whatever, that's fine. Um, he had a mystery medical scare. We ended up going to the, the doctor and doing three hours of all kinds of other tests. But he had had a outbreak, it looked like, on the head of his penis and like maybe a couple inches down the shaft that looked like ulcers, looked like the sores I get on my mouth, you know, a couple times a year from HSV-1. And I've never given a blowjob or gone down on him or even kissed him when I have an open sore, but we have spent, you know, overnight playing and all kinds of stuff. And then I've woken up the next morning and I've been starting to get a sore. So it seems, you know, not unlikely that I could transmit to him. Um, and he's so chill, honestly. He's just like, well, if I have herpes on my dick, that's fine. Whatever. Just one more thing. <laughs> yeah. And... It's these kinds of experiences that I believe that if integrated into some sort of an, a prevention resource or SCI minimization resource, I think that this can help us with reducing the new potential infections because if people are aware of not only how to talk about sexual health, but how to um, have that the, the sports and sex analogy that we used earlier, mm -hmm. but to be given more guidance and have the understanding that this is something that just it happens we get stis if we're going to be sexually active this is a risk that 
we have to understand, be aware of. I'm not saying we have to accept it as <laughs> this is always going to happen, but this is something that is almost inevitable. I have a really random problematic pop culture reference that is so relevant right now. Um, Lena Dunham, Dun Dunham, 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 Lena Dunham of Girls. So, uh, Lena Dunham aside, there's there was a moment in one of the uh, Girls episodes when I used to watch that show where one of the characters is like, "Oh, I have HPV. I have HPV. My ex says he didn't give it to me because he tested negative," and then she finds out that you can't test males for it anyway. One of the other characters says, you know, in France or Europe, you're not cool unless you have at least a couple strains of HPV. <laughs> like, everybody's got it. That's fine. And I thought that was really, um, I thought that was really interesting just to, you know, if that's the case, take us out of, like, American culture. And remember, like, we are just one continent, you know, and then all the other places that America has colonized around the world. But... Like, we're not the entire world, and just because something is a way to us, like, the stigma of, of, you know, HPV, like, maybe it's just not like that across the pond. You know, we could be like that. We could be slutty French people, be <laughs> responsibly slutty. Yes. Yes, we can. All right, Elle, um, that was everything. This was great, and we got to go in a lot more depth uh, than I planned to, so... I want to ask, is there anything that you want to leave people with and how can people get in contact with you if they want to? Yeah. If, and if I, you want them to. I do. Yeah. I want to hear from people. If I said anything confusing or you disagree with or that resonated with you, uh, find me on Twitter at L Stanger. My website is Stripper Writer. You can find me on Instagram by that handle. And then I do have my own podcast, They Talk Sex Podcast on Apple and Spotify. All right. That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, subscribe to, and share this podcast on your favorite listening platform, whatever that may be. Spotify, iTunes, Apple Play, Google Play, iHeartRadio. Um, I think that's the that's all the big ones, I would say. So, um, yeah, I can be contacted over email at Courtney at SPFPP.org. Please visit the www.spfpp.org website today if you want to donate, if you want to reach out about any mentorship or any mental health services being provided, please do so. And understand that whatever it is that you donate to something positive for positive people is tax deductible and you'll get a 501c3 letter with your donation um, as well as, I mean, I, please don't make me write these things up for like $5 donations, <laughs> like, it, it, seriously. <laughs> so if you're going to make a significant amount of a donation that you want written off on your taxes, please don't hesitate to reach out and we'll be able to go from there. And, um, like I said, mental health services are available as well as mentorship options. So just hit me up www.spfpp.org. And thank you so much for listening till next time. Stay sex positive.